Have you been zombified by your insatiable curiosity? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. Zombified is a production of ASU and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and insatiable brain enthusiast. (laughs) Insatiable. I like how you did that. Yeah, so this episode is about insatiable curiosity and also a lot of other like kind of interesting and sort of dark things around death and dying. Really? Like yeah. that sort of things? Well, so we, um, I talked to Mark Minucci, who is a documentary filmmaker uh-huh. who is really engaged in how to present science in a documentary form and engage both sort of the science side and the human side at the same time. So he's made documentaries about, like, what happens to you microbially when you die. Um, What happens uh, to you um, if you're, like, he did a whole... um, a whole documentary about brain death. Uh-huh. So we talk about that some. Um, and and we just talk about zombification because he's kind of really gotten into zombification ever since I started talking to him cool. about it um, when I met him a few years ago. So, yeah, it's a it's kind of a, you know, free-ranging conversation, but then we, re- we really bring it back to how curiosity can really drive us um, both to... Uh, kind of learn about these things that are dark, but then also sometimes it can be a vulnerability to be curious. Interesting. So it's a little similar to morbid curiosity, right? Yeah, there's definitely some interplay between this episode and the last episode with Barb Natterson. All right. Sounds good. All right. So let's hear from Mark Minucci. All right. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. Thank you so much for being here with us. Mark, would you introduce yourself in your own words? Sure. I'm a, I'm a documentary filmmaker, media maker. I don't know what you call what I do anymore. Films, what are those? Uh, television programs, what are those? But we make <laughs> pictures with sounds and music to tell stories. So that's what, that's what I do. That's what I do with my... My partner, Jonathan Halpern. Excellent. And how did you get into this field? Was it something you always sort of knew that you wanted to do? or I was just telling somebody this the other day that I was going through my things, and I found a manila folder uh, from when I was 12 years old that said, Star Productions. And I opened it, <laughs> and there was some lined paper, and it said, Inventory, one Super 8 camera, four rolls of film. <laughs> Turned another page, Script. For some little kidnap in the park film, <laughs> and I was twelve. So, 
Yeah, it's something I've I've uh, I've wanted to do without having had a clue as to what it meant. Mm. And to you do were it. already into like the morbid things, like kidnap in the park. <laughs> kidnap in the park, yeah. Well, you know, that's 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 the interesting stuff. But I really I had no clue as to uh, what it would mean to spend your life doing this. I, I remember also when I started when I was twenty, I said, "Geez, by the time I get to fifty, I wanna." All I care about is wanting to do really interesting projects. I don't want to, it's all I care about. And uh, so that time came and it was like, wow, yeah, boy, but it sure is hard. <laughs> you know, it's, mm. it just gets, uh, it gets denser and denser and harder and harder and much, much more fun as time goes on. And I haven't quite figured out what that is. Maybe you just get more fluent in, mm-hmm. in your skills and you go deeper and you mm-hmm. into into the kind of stories you tell and so it makes it harder because you have a higher bar each time but it's also it's, it gets to be more fun as time yeah goes so on. what kind of stories do you like to tell you know uh i've made everything from Kids TV. I used to direct a series called Reading Rainbow. I watched that when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, God. All right. All right. All right. We won't go too deep into that. But yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that. I actually, that's it, was, I, it was awesome. I loved it. Well, so. Great. Thank yeah. you. Uh, I, uh, I, I directed about 35 episodes of that, and that's really how I cut my teeth. And then I, I did arts programming for, for public television, and I did a lot of dance and theater. And then since then, I've done subjects that have ranged from a story about the last 45 days of, uh, of the lives of three men on death row in Texas and what that was like for them to uh, short films about the microbiome and <laughs> what that means to us to a recent film, uh, a definitive uh, biographical film about James Watson, um, the uh, very controversial uh, uh, biologist who was the co-discoverer of DNA and uh, who, whose life came crashing down when he uh, made a series of, of, of really unfortunate racist remarks 10 years ago that he affirmed in our in our film yeah so brought brought his life crashing down once more and the film is really about you know what is science what is true brilliance what is a true intellect and what is pseudoscience Mm. you know and how a man who can win the nobel prize can still be subject to the same seduced by the same kind of pseudoscientific notions that people who are far less uh, uh, accomplished in the scientific realm than he is could, could, mm. could be subject to. And then, the, and then the, the way that affects people. Would you say he was zombified by the pseudoscience? He's zombified by something. And I think that something is ego. And, you know, thinking about zombification, we, we've talked about this. So what, what zombie is pulling the strings of, of that ego? Right. Who, who benefits ultimately who from that? benefits? Is it 
Yeah, or is it some byproduct of other processes just... Yeah, you know, I think that... Uh, I think that, you know, if I were a shrink, I would say not Watson has some kind of narcissistic complex. And, uh, but I'm not. So I'll just say that he's a person who's extremely uh, self-involved. And so the actions he takes all seem to benefit some need he has for some kind of self-aggrandizement. And what, what is that about? What's, what, why, you know, why is the person in the next room self-effacing and able to devote 100% of their energy towards helping someone else? So that brings up a really sort of deep question about whether you can be zombified by your own ego. By yourself, in a sense. I think you can be zombified by your own ego. Uh, and I think that if you look at zombification objectively, an altruist is as zombified as a narcissist. <laughs> but it's a different germ. You know, it's a different... Something else is controlling them. Mm. And the degree to which it's some external organism or whatever, you know, that's above my pay grade... But I, I think in terms of sort of the structure of, if you ask the question, is there a zombie pulling the strings of our consciousness in some fashion, it's as likely to happen with an altruist, as a narcissist, with a, with a Trump, as a Carter. Hmm. So... Uh, so should we be aspiring to not be zombified? Or is it I just don't think there's like... any chance of not being zombified. <laughs> I'm not sure we'd want to not be zombified. Um, but presumably some things, it's not good to be zombified by other things, maybe. I think there's, I think by. that, uh, yeah, but it raises a question of are you just lucky to not be zombified past the point at which there can be incredible harm to you or you could inflict incredible harm on other people. You know, it's uh, just, can I talk about the conference? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. there were two things that yeah. were notable about this. So Mark was one of our speakers at the Zombie Apocalypse I, Medicine meeting. Yeah, and I just I tried to attend as many talks. It was just an amazingly eye-opening uh, way of thinking for me. But I guess the first one I attended was uh, Diana Fleischman's. Yeah where she was talking a lot about sex and um, the zombification mechanisms involved with sexual attraction. Uh, she was speaking specifically of the spread of venereal disease, but she was also talking about marriage. And the negotiations that happened within a marriage that are subject to unknown zombification processes. Right? So it's fascinating, and, and some of those were very positive things. They were ways of negotiating within a, within a relationship uh, that your zombie was controlling, presumably, that had salutary beneficial effects for the balance of the relationship. And if both people were zombified in complementary ways, good things could happen. And then there was the mock trial, mm -hmm. where... 
you know, the case was, was an extreme thought experiment, but clearly this, this level of zombification, which led to murder and cannibalism. And right, so the setup for the mock trial was that uh, husband walked in on his wife with another guy who was a guy that he had worked with or something, right? Is that, right. Am I remembering that, that, that right? That's, yeah. that's, that's the essential triangle right. part and of then it. He, and then the, this husband murders the... The lover. The lover and... And eats, eats him. him. Yes. It's a, and, a zombie uh, You know... Uh, <laughs> that's... At, right. That's, and then the, uh, the question was, you know, was he... In control. Yeah. Was he he or was he them or was he it or what was he? Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very compelling question. When you start to ask that for every action you take from the time you wake, and God only knows what zombie processes happen in your sleep, mm-hmm. but from the time <laughs> you wake, when there is a, 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 whether it's an illusion or an actual willful intent on your part, every action you take, to what extent are they subject to zombification, it's just, you know, it's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah, well, so I've started doing this thing where I will not go on my email until after 10 a.m. because I realize if I start on my email, then I get zombified by all of these things that are just like, you know, do this, this is urgent, or this is, you know, and, and then my brain is just filled up with all this stuff and I can't actually write. So you think you're 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 fighting that zombification. Well, maybe for, you know, two hours in the morning, but <laughs> So I would look at it as in 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 because I've been completely zombified by your zombification thoughts. <laughs> but uh, I would look at it that now your counter zombies won over the other zombies for an hour and a half or two hours. So the anti zombification memes are spreading like no, zombies. No, they're just different zombies <laughs> with a different intent. All right. And 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 uh, I mean that's the way I'm uh-huh. now thinking of. So there's no way to get away from the zombification. It's just replacing one type with another type. Exactly. You know, I, that's exactly it. We, we did these microbiome films and one of the, you know, facts in the, in the Ed Young's book upon which this, this series was based, I Contain Multitudes, was this number 38 billion, I can't even remember anymore, 38 billion, 38 trillion microbes that live on and within us. Okay, fine, it's just a number. But then when we started to do the art for the film, and we started to try and figure out a way to visualize that. We came up with some kind of, you know, creepy crawly tattoo pattern of microbes all over your body. And when I saw that and then started thinking about the whole zombie thing, I was like, well, there's no way to escape this. You know, I mean, if there's mm-hmm. 38 million creatures with even an iota of intent and will to live on you and in you, what are you going to... Yeah, you're not going to answer your email, or you're going to go do your. You know, you don't stand a chance. And uh, um, I don't know. I find it. I find it uh, less depressing than I thought I would, because uh, we're all dealing with it. And uh, you know, you can go, I guess, Eastern philosophy on this, and that we're all sort of one tapestry of. Existence, Inter- interconnected, interconnected existence. Yeah. I guess you can think of it that way. 
but uh, mostly it's just fascinating. Yeah. So a lot of the films that you have done have, in a way, kind of been about health, medicine, death. A lot of death. A lot of death. So yeah. where where did the interest in death come from? You know, from? Uh, it it uh, it's funny. I I uh, I started a, a, to work with National Geographic, and just by happenstance, I got asked to do a film called Moment of Death, which is about that interval between life and death, which is of course ever lengthening with modern medicine. You know, they just resurrected yeah. the neurons and 32 dead pigs yeah you know, so was that brain dead or was it not dead you know um can you tell us a little bit about that time that, period? that interval I, I mean that's the potentially the undead time right so definitely it's the undead time to this that undead podcast. time is 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 lengthening in 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 in, in surprising ways and uh uh and, and, and certainly in, in terms of, of, of duration, you know, the, the history of brain death is a, is a fascinating, uh, fascinating thing, you know, uh, that... What uh, does brain death mean exactly? Just... What does brain death mean and, 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 uh, and, and, and when does it happen? You know, there, there are legal definitions of brain death, which is uh, no detectable ac- activity. And then there's... Uh, um, other uh, considerations that come in when there's reflex activity, uh, when you're on a respirator and your body is still pink and rosy and, and the cells are still alive, uh, you know, and the brain is, is, is not uh, decaying, you know, are you, are you in a state of, of, of life or death at that point? And, uh, and a history of, of how these definitions came about had a lot to do with technology had a lot to do with what we could detect you know uh, in the 19th century the, the there was a a, a a thing called a waiting mortuary in germany so when you're in this undead or this yeah. what dead uh uh-huh. phase um because it was rec- there was a such an extreme fear of premature burial because uh-huh. people would fall into all sorts of catatonic trances and comas and, 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 and states of being where their metabolism was so low. So why was that happening all the time? It was happening because if, if, if you were unfortunate enough to be in one of these, to, to have a, uh, a, a condition that would put you in, 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 a, in that kind of coma with a barely detectable metabolic response fee yeah. temperature you would be put in 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 these wards called waiting mortuaries and not to be treated but they were just you know rooms full of beds popular in germany uh, i don't know if we had them in the united states and um until you began to smell are you serious you were considered neither dead nor alive you were considered in this indeterminate state wow the tests then were uh, pins under the fingernails, uh, nipple pincers, pencils up the nose, uh, cranks that would pull the tongue out. And if there was no detectable response oh from goodness. these, and of course, if you're in a coma, you could still not 
detect these things, so it doesn't really prove anything. Mirror to the, to the uh, uh, nostrils to see if it fogged up uh, until you demonstrated some sign of life. Uh, uh, and if you began to smell, um, you would, only then would you be removed and, and buried. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is in doing this film, uh, we went to, uh, we were filming at UCLA, and we were filming a test of brain death. And <laughs> I'm laughing because it was just so jarring. It was, an, it was, a, it was a very tragic circumstance well, with a there young this, man. Isn't this situation also where, like, things that are just so, like, tragic and dark and horrible, like, that, we, that, we laugh yeah. sometimes. And it's, like, just yeah. a way to deal. Yeah, it's just a way to how deal. My, I have a, a, a colleague friend who is an ER physician, and he says, like, if anybody knew what they were saying in the break rooms and laughing about, it would just... They would think we were, yeah, you yeah. know, evil people. Yeah. yeah, but it's just how they deal, because it's just constantly all this bad shit happening. Yeah, it's and so, so you know, I had just done this section on the film on the waiting mortuary, and there we were, and, you know, the neurosurgeon took a pin and stuck it under the finger, you know, here we are 120 years later, and he stuck it into the toe of this subject, and he cranked his neck back and forth, oh and he shined, like, and I was like, wow, this is just, this is like, and yes, they have all the, they have all the high, you know, beep, 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 all the yeah. stuff around him, but they're still, they want to touch death, you know, they want to know, mm. they want to touch the body, and they want to feel whether a person is dead or alive. And they use the same techniques that they used 120 years ago. Wow. Yeah. It's really fascinating. Anyway, so I did that film, and then, uh, so and then the Death Row film. Can got, I ask you got, about, you said people want to touch death. like Yeah. They want to... Well, a doctor. I think yeah. a doctor who's not, a, again, to your point, yeah. that they're, they're inured to some of the more uh, disturbing aspects of, 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 of death uh, want to um, feel it and touch it and palpate it and understand, you know, physic, you know, they, they don't want to, they want to rely on their own senses right. to understand Hence, if life has left a, a body. Until the body starts smelling, it until could be alive. Body, yeah, I think they, uh, I think they, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I hope they haven't got. To, they don't use that that uh, criterion anymore. Yeah, that'd be unfortunate. But uh, but then I guess if we use that criterion for zombies, zombies smell bad, right? So they must be dead. Well, we, we, yeah. I mean, and the zombies, the the zombies don't necessarily care about what you as a human define as life and death. Uh, I'm not sure it matters to them, to all of them, to some of them it must matter. We did another story about the blossom of life that begins after death. So when your body dies, your anti-zombie troops, your immune system... They're gone. Gone. And... Uh, that's a very, very happy state of affairs for any kind of zombification that was existing within you. There is no check and balance anymore. And so while your native cells are decaying, this bacterial bloom is just, you know, it's like the 
it's like an algae bloom. Yeah. It's just it's it's a it's an amazing effusion of life. It's just a if you just look at life as like you know this this force this energy that in your dead body life is is blooming. And finally, the payoff for all those microbes that were just patiently waiting for you to die so that they could eat you alive from the inside. From the inside. Yeah. Yeah. And then they then then sated and full and happy, they explode into the world <laughs> and do it again. What a you know. story of blossoming life. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's a, that that was the work of a of a young scientist who I, I hope can come to one of your conferences, Jessica. Mm-hmm. Metcalf, yeah, yeah. Great, great lady at Colorado mm-hmm. uh, State University. So, yeah. So you're kind of taking something that is like really morbid and disgusting and making it about beautiful, you know, resilience of yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a it's a it's a real challenge, and uh, you know, we uh, we uh, we try to have fun with these uh, with these programs about death because ultimately. Your entertainment zombie, your zombies, your certain brain zombies want to be entertained when they watch <laughs> when they watch movies, and so uh, it it does no good to try and tell a story uh, uh, that isn't fun and engaging and interesting. But you know, obviously, there's sensitivities uh, that you have to tread. So in the in the moment of death film, and in the de- you know the moment of death film, when we're 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 dealing with actual people, you you uh, you tread more lightly than in a film about microbes where right. you can have a lot more fun yeah. uh, with bringing them to life because you're dead people or cartoons, characters. Right, know. right. Yeah. So I cut you off when you were about to go on to talk about the Death Row film. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how that fits into the whole uh, paradigm other than it was... Was a it was another angle on on death, um, which was which was a uh, just you know it was Texas it was it was enlightening there was there was you know three men each with three very very different stories one a one a a man who became inebriated and committed his crime and another a young teenager who. Peer pressure. He was uh, 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 compelled to to do a murder by his peers, and his defense was that uh, he uh, one of his friends shot this old lady prior to he did, and so that he was shooting a dead person, so he couldn't be mm. convicted of murder. And uh, Texas didn't go for that. Uh, and then the third guy was a guy who your classic, uh, you know, insane killer who said that the wrong person was in the cell and that the real Johnny was out on the streets and they had the wrong Johnny and the Johnny, the devil, was still out there, uh, dangerous, but that the Johnny they had, you know. Yeah. And he was a real split personality kind of. But it was, uh, so that was a, that had no science in it at all other than the science of uh, lethal injection so that mm-hmm. people understood that. But and then the, the th- situations, right? I mean, you had someone who was, you know, insane potentially, right? And so zombified by who knows totally. what kind of neural 
disturbance. Absolutely. Someone who is compelled by their peers, zombified by zombified their by peers. The, and the other one by alcohol. Yeah. And, so, and jealousy, and uh, it was one of those crime, crime of yeah. so then passion. In doing that film, this whole sort of question of like influence and what actually, you know, who's under the influence of what and yeah, it was, where it, did the crime... It was, it was, it, that was, those were things we thought about for the entire time we were doing this film, which, which, you know, we got to know these characters, I got to know them and followed them, you know, followed their story through their execution. So it was a very odd process to talk to people for two and three months and then and then their day came and, yeah. and then you met up with them again but in the funeral home it was a uh -huh. it was a disturbing and uh uh enlightening um well then I, process. I imagine too in making the film then you're seeing them again right because you're seeing yeah, you're seeing the interviews them. that you did with them, and, and the then footage you work with them you... for months afterwards with the interviews. So they're alive again in that way. It was a, it was an experience I'll never, I'll never forget. And it, and it wasn't an innocence project. I felt wasn't a, to exonerate them. They all, they all uh, admitted their culpability. I mean, even this young man who said that he shouldn't be convicted of murder did admit to shooting this woman mm -hmm. so it was a it was about them coming to terms with the forces that controlled them at the time in their life when they committed this crime 12 years earlier mm -hmm. and they had all been right on death row forever well and then i guess so. the other you know control issue is the fact that you know as a society we have a system for punishing people who do these acts right and so that's you know potentially another aspect of zombification but one that's for the collective good right to be not i mean maybe not not killing people, but having some system for for correction yeah yeah i wouldn't be the way that i would correct these situations yeah uh, i don't think it it did uh it ultimately did any good and there's all sorts of statistics about you know uh, uh, about how death penalty and you know actually having an effect on violent crime and but uh, yeah it is a it is an attempt at a corrective you know yeah. uh, even if even if not uh, the one that that I I think mm -hmm. is, is is the is the path to take and the goal so, is ultimately you know to at least the way that it's framed is that the goal of that is to change people's behavior, right? So that they don't. The do goal those of things. the death penalty, I don't or, think no, that, is, is, that is to vengeance? is to is to is is well, it's been it's been explained as as a, a deterrent. So the goal is yeah. to change other people's yeah. behavior, not the behavior of the people right. who will never be allowed out again. Uh, it doesn't matter about their behavior. Uh, it's been described as a uh, way to uh, uh, create some kind of, of healing and reconciliation and... Um, uh, but it's kind of uh, hard to uh, reconcile and heal when 
killing people is involved. It is. Yeah. It is. And 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 retribution. Uh, you know the yeah. biblical eye, eye for an eye. Um, none of which seem to have an effect on violent crime because they're not committed with the kind of intent that would be deterred by yeah. a death penalty. So, uh, but yeah, it is a it is a, a misguided form of uh, a misguided social corrective. Yeah. Where a lot of mass incarceration yeah. is. Yeah, well, maybe that would be a good topic for us for like a future podcast to actually talk about incarceration because, I mean, not talk about like controlling people's behavior, right? I mean, if you're incarcerated, you have a yeah. very limited repertoire of things that you can do. You kind of getting zombified by a system. Absolutely, and there's yeah. a you know there there is a movement that is that is. Uh, very hard for a lot of people to take uh, that calls for abolishing prisons altogether and uh, it's a complicated complicated subject and I'm not really qualified to talk about it but that you know but the premise being that the kind of incarceration that we have uh, only reinforces the culture of criminality only embitters people only diminishes their productivity, doesn't do anything to re regenerative, anything healing, anything to but sheer punishment. Yeah. So that we have the illusion that uh, a whole class of people has been removed from society. It, it goes back to what we were talking about cancer earlier. You know, uh, it's as if we're treating felons as if they are some kind of diseased organisms that need to be sequestered, mm -hmm. quarantined, put away, removed, and uh, um, so that they can't yeah. infect us mm -hmm. anymore. When I was at the um, at Stanford for a couple of months a few years ago, there was a professor who gave a talk. Um, he's visiting, and he the thing that I remember was he said that in California, more money is spent on the prisons than on the universities. I wouldn't be surprised. It uh, it it costs way more. I mean, it's one of the statistics we learned to to um, to uh, go through the process of having somebody on death row than putting them in prison for life because of all the incredible uh, legal expenses that and mm. the resources that are involved. So wow. I wouldn't be surprised if that yeah. statistic uh, were true. Yeah. It takes a lot more energy and money to suppress and incarcerate and imprison people than it does to let them loose with their intellect and let them follow their mm -hmm. impulse to learn. Mm -hmm. You want some more water? Yeah, love some. Thanks. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And then the, the third film was about the choices we make for our bodies, our physical bodies, after we die. Mm, that's really interesting. And uh, it, it was fascinating. It was fascinating. And it, you know, it began with the, the classic choice that still probably, I would say, 
vastly more popular, which is the funeral home burial with embalming and uh, uh, open casket viewing and uh, and uh, and it went all the way to people who made the choice to follow their loved one through the process of dying to preparing their body wow for burial uh, in, a, in a home funeral and then actually doing the uh, and actually burying that person in a it's not a cemetery really it's more like a park um, where they're in the woods and they're you know wow. so if you go to the, there's one in Texas that's beautiful it looks it's a beautiful just 30 or 40 acres and you'd never know there were it was a burial ground wow. because people are, you know, they see stones here and there, but you're in the forest. And um, and all the choices, there's so many choices in between. In India, uh, in Varanasi, they burn the body in a ritual mm-hmm. uh, uh, um, uh, way by the river, uh, ritual cremation. Um, and then right near you in Scottsdale, yeah. there's Alcor. <laughs> Which yeah. is, you know, probably most of us, many of us would consider it the most insane choice you could make, which is um, to freeze your body, either your entire body, or to sever your head uh, uh, and to only preserve your head uh, in the hope that you could reattach it to another body or be reanimated in a way that didn't require a physical body uh, uh, the theory being that to get your whole body working again would probably take more than just getting your brain working again and uh, and it's a choice that uh, is, is, is people make it's very affordable how much um, does that cost you know I think it's it's probably like your cable TV bill I think uh, it's, <laughs> are you serious yeah it's not much more than that um, and then the money gets invested in a trust fund, and it, they invest it, and it grows, and and uh, so you have you know money to take care of yourself. And obviously, it's just like health insurance, the younger, like they want to attract younger people uh-huh. because they want to get that that monthly fee for oh my gosh. longer. And and uh, but it's a viable business. And uh, I was there. I see all the cry, cryo tanks, and people. You know, it's not a theoretical thing. People are actually there in the hope that one day they'll come back and then if you think about it uh so so the it feels like a parallel with the living mortuary of sorts it's very interesting that's true it's a parallel with the living mortuary it's a it's a it's a preemptive uh living mortuary it's as if the people in the living mortuary the family said doesn't matter if i'm alive or dead freeze me now We'll work it out later, <laughs> you know. And in fact, there is a there is a, a big cultural. They operate all over the world, and uh, China's a big market for them. And in the United States, somebody has to be pronounced brain dead uh, in order for them to collect the body. They can't go to the ICU. Mm-hmm. You can't sign your husband, mother, brother, sister, wife, over to Alcor when you're at a minimal level of, of, of metabolic activity. You have to be dead, dead. 
which mm-hmm. is what the doctors call it. They don't call it debt. Debt is debt is reversible. <laughs> debt oh. is reversible. In the so medical profession, debt is reversible and dead debt is not reversible. Is that Seriously, there's dead and well, there's dead. This one dead? doctor at uh, UPenn, wow. that's the way he explained it to me. Dead, you know, you can be dead, but I can get you back. But like, <laughs> you have a heart attack, your heart stops beating, you're dead. Or at least for most of human existence, you were dead. Now you're not dead. Now you're, you're, you're not dead till you're dead dead, till the defibrillation for however mm-hmm. long doesn't work. Then you're dead dead. So this implies that overkill isn't meaningless. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. So, so you have to be dead dead. To, to go to Alcor, you can't be just dead. And, um, uh, but in China, you can be dead. Or you, you can not even be dead. You Are you can serious? Be, yeah, you can be, you can sign, uh, 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 the, the, the uh, threshold at which you can be um, pulled off of any kind of support mm-hmm. is legally lower minimally not it's you can't you know you you it, it I, i'm not you can't just say i don't feel well i'm ready yeah. or, and you can't say you, you can't use it as a type of assisted suicide but for them the way they explain it the fresher the body the better the freezing the better the freezing the better the chance of you coming back so if if, if it's mm-hmm. a matter of a couple of hours between being almost dead or dead and dead dead you're better off in the earlier side of the of, wow. the of the of the of the spectrum so uh it's interesting so they they uh, they talk about that and then so they have they fly they have body we were there and they had body flown from some other country that was waiting for it's uh, it's really interesting and then the head of the the of max <laughs> the, the, uh, head, remember the, his head. Wife, the head yes <laughs> he, he you know he puts it quite simply he says well look what have you got to lose really Right? <laughs> really, you were going to be buried or cremated, which is completely irreversible. Well, really, what have you got to lose? You paid us the money. Okay. There might maybe, be an afterlife. Maybe what you'll do you come have back, to lose? but really, what do you have to you lose? You might as well believe in us. But here's the question. <laughs> okay, I come back in 300 years, 250 years, let's, let's say. Technology is there to bring, or to even 200 Nobody I know is alive. I have no job. <laughs> I have no home. I may not even be able to speak the language that's being spoken. I certainly won't know the cultural norms. Any uh, skills that you have will be <laughs> obsolete. <as laughs> completely well. obsolete. So actually, part of the part of the money goes for a, uh, I don't know how they structure it because it hasn't come into play yet, but part of the money will go for a uh, cultural uh, reanimation unit that will help people who are brought back. Oh my gosh, to re- they've really thought about so, this. Yeah, they've really thought about it because they'll say, well, so your body's back, but that doesn't do you any good if you're completely detached from the 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 prevalent yeah. culture of the day yeah is that living yeah so uh so there's a cultural reanimation yeah. and training so you would you know. yeah but but so i mean the argument of what do you have to lose it's the exact same argument that has been made for why you should 
potentially believe in a higher power because you won't have anything, you don't have anything to lose, right? So I, so it sounds like there's almost a quasi-religious he, vibe to he, this in whole fact, thing. In uh, fact, uh, I can't remember his last name, Max, uh, it's like uh, Mingle. He, he's a transhumanist. So there is a, there is a strong philosophical underpinning to the whole uh-huh. operation. So why are they doing cryogenic freezing in Scottsdale, where in the summer it can be 120 degrees? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, I don't remember the... Uh, the, I mean, uh, I imagine they have some like pretty good backup generators and stuff. They have, but yeah. We looked at all of that. How long there's, would there's, that last? Like, if there was like a serious issue with power. He he did a whole interview section about how uh, if World War Three happened, those tanks would still be supplied with enough liquid nitrogen to uh, last for for. Tens and tens of years. Oh, here's the mm. thing: there is no electricity involved in cryogenics. It's okay. it's it's there, there is. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's some. You know, you have to keep the lights on in the place. But the tanks are are called doers, and they're you know incredibly thickly insulated, and the bodies are sitting in liquid nitrogen, which is heavy and sits in these tanks, and that liquid nitrogen needs to be recharged only every so often. And they have their own liquid nitrogen plant that they own. Wow. So, begs the question if somebody bombed their liquid nitrogen plant, what yeah. would happen? But they say we're off the grid in terms of being able to supply this liquid nitrogen to you. You will wow. always be bathed in liquid nitrogen forever. Wow. Uh, do not worry. And if all the lights go off, that liquid nitrogen stays cold. So, if you want to... He's a salesman. Yeah, preserve (laughs) the possibility of just being undead for having your body frozen. I mean, should we just think of it as a living, as like a tomb, but one where you're bathed in nitrogen? It's the the inverse of cremation. It's it's a tomb where you're bathed in nitrogen, You'll either come back or you won't. In the state, the undead state that you're in, it makes no difference to you. Uh, your zombies are resting. Everybody's taking a break. Yeah. So uh, it, it makes me wonder. Like, so if three hundred years from now they figured out how to reanimate those bodies, like, would people be like, "Those are monsters"? It's very likely, right? You know, or or certainly, yeah. are they the other? You yeah. Know? And would they be, you know, relegated to some kind of 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 of, of inferior status or some kind of discrimination? I mean, there are there people from, you know, another time. Oh and, yeah, uh, and there'd be people who you know had the means at least to do this, and then they are in a future where. I don't know. That could be a really interesting. Movie yeah, or and then you know, you know? Ima- imagine that that you, you know, it's like the, the, one of the concepts is you have a pancreatic cancer. You just died from pancreatic cancer. You're reanimated at a time when they can reverse all the damage, 
or this is a, or that would be a choice where you've you've cut your you've said your body is has been damaged to 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 a point beyond return and it would just be your head but there are other conditions that are incurable now and the theory is that you will be uh, awakened once those conditions are now easily curable that's a theory huh that's that's one of the one of the <laughs> but the other is people people want to live you know i think the other thing is you know and this goes back to watson who had this self-involvement uh we did an interview with a young woman who said i just want to live forever she didn't have any disease or anything she said i just i just want to live forever you know i want to know that in a thousand years i'll be around and when my new body a second body gets old I'll freeze again and then I'll freeze again and then I just want to live forever and so she was uh, somebody who had signed up to have her head she frozen she was 20 32 and then she, she was signed like, up to get have the her new head frozen bodies that's correct the idea yeah she lives in phoenix okay there are a lot of people like that who live there <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but uh yeah she uh she uh that was her that was her uh and since her she's intent. signed up in her 20s, it was probably fairly cheap for her. Pretty, right? Fairly yeah. cheap. She yeah. has a little ankle bracelet that says, in case of death, call Alcor, and it has their number. Oh, and they, wow. the Alcor team comes and uh, takes you away. And the legal papers have all been signed so that it's uh, they have now legal custody of your oh, That body. must be a good conversation piece. Like if she's on a date, it's like, yeah, yeah my, yeah, my hey. anklet. Yeah. Check it out. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, so, Mark, you have been working in entertainment really for yeah. your whole life. Yeah. And a little bit earlier when we were chatting, you brought up like how, you know, people want to be entertained. And you have to kind of take that into consideration as you're putting together the films that you make. To what extent do you feel like that, like, drive to entertain is like a constraint versus like a an opportunity or you know it, how does it zombify well, you if it does like, yeah no yeah. it's a good it's a good zombification constraint and i think you need to you you know i i, I think you need to look at the what what you mean by the word entertain you know when i when i hear it played back to me from you i think oh well, that sounds like you know, a stand-up comic or... A circus you know, or, or... Yeah, or a sitcom. <laughs> yeah. Or there's got to be a laugh every 30 seconds. And I think that entertain means... And, and and my partner, John, and I talk about this all the time. Our shorthand and we're writing even something serious is we go, there's not enough vaudeville in it. You know, there's not enough... Mm. It's, or, or, or that act, it's all vaudeville. And we use that term because we all of us like stories that grab us by the throat and don't let us go uh-huh. till the end till they satisfy us in some way and that's what we mean by entertain so we've got to take the material and unwrap it and unravel it in a way that is like spinning a good yarn telling right. a good tale Telling a good joke. We use we use when we when we're writing a script or an outline, 
we're saying that the punchline isn't any good. And we mm. don't mean we're writing jokes, right, right. but punchline is where we got to land yeah. so that you go, oh, I get it. Or, wow, I didn't know that. And there's enough mystery and questions. There's enough you still want to learn about as the story's uh, happening to, 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 to pull you through. So that's... When I going back to what I talked about when I started about what's getting more difficult and denser and more rewarding is I think being able to learn how to do that so sort of, just a little better than when one started where you tend to go okay here's the story and here it is and mm-hmm. you know and and now you seduce and cajole and play and deliberately withhold and then pick this point to reveal this part and. Uh-huh. You know, it's uh, so you're sort of keeping people engaged with keeping, a, a narrative arc that has yeah. some complexities. And, and I don't think that it's any, you know, some people might hear them go, but you're a documentary filmmaker. You've you you have to tell a true story. Well, we're not talking about the difference between truth and mistruth. We're talking about how you tell that story. And you know, we've all encountered people who who who. Uh, who sit down and can tell you a story and you just, you can't, you know, just, they're masters at it. And others who put the plot point that should be at the end, they do it at the beginning <laughs> and then they go yeah. off in time and then they're confused and they use a, pro- you know, some yeah. of it's just mechanical nuts and bolts, but it's, it's you know, that's the crossword, that's the intellectual part of this job, the process that, that I just, I just love, you know. That's great. So, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so that's what entertainment means. Yeah. Keeping you interested even when it's a subject that has a kind of disturbing or gruesome aspect to it. If there's a reason yeah. to learn about it, then you have to learn about it in an entertaining Yeah. Way. Well, I mean, you could think of that also as just approaching the process of teaching someone something? Absolutely. The best teachers are yeah. the ones who can do this. Yeah, but with taking the audience into account, right? Because I think a lot of people are like, oh, I have to teach, and they teach from, I have this knowledge in my head, I'm going to... Dump re- it out. Dump it out, and then you can figure out how it all fits together. No. But if you don't present it in a way that someone else's brain can latch onto, then... You know, then what's the point? You're not actually reaching someone. You're you're just throwing a bunch of random things out there so, that their brain can't put together. So here's a zombie thing, because this reminds me of of, of uh, talking about the zombies that drive us. What is it? What is curiosity? Is there a zombie process behind curiosity? Why do we want to? Why are we so turned on when we hear a question that we don't know the answer to? Why do we want to hang in there and find out? You know, you could tell somebody something manifest and, you know, uh, birds are dinosaurs. Or you could say, that bird, why, what is it? Why is that? Did you know that an eagle is a dinosaur or a hummingbird is a dinosaur? What the hell? You know, why? Yeah. And then you start to think about it, and then you start to play out the information that way. And I remember hearing, and I have no idea how apocryphal this is, uh, when I was doing a, a, a neuroscience film many years ago about human decision-making, and I heard a story about um, 
an experiment that was being financed by the Associated Press. And it was an attempt to quantify, to find out what people were the most curious and how much of a reward system there was, how much pleasure they derived from finding out the answer to something. Interesting. So they looked, they did fMRIs where they looked at how intensely the brain lit up in certain people when they got the answer to something. There was a question, there was a mystery, and when they, and they were, you know, a lot of activity as they were trying to, in the frustration period, mm -hmm. and then this, this different kind of activity when they got the result. And I heard that the reason that the Associated Press financed it, and again, this could be completely baloney, <laughs> but it just struck me in any case, was to find out what people would be the most passionate reporters that just needed to get to the bottom of the story. Mm. And the more drive they had, the more innately, the more part of who they were, whether it was zombies or whatever, that made them want to get the answer, the less they could be paid. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so I have no idea if that it's true. That sounds like academia, yeah, right? It's like, <laughs> but one can imagine some corporation saying, if we can find out if there's worker bees out there uh -huh. who just want to do the work for the pleasure of doing the work and don't really look at the paycheck, wouldn't that be great? Wow, we'll hire those people. <laughs> so wow. I don't know if that's true, but wow, yeah. Well, uh, probably in entertainment and film and all of that. There's I'm one a lot of those people. people. Who just want to do that. <laughs> I'm yeah, one of those you're, people. You're a zombie. Oh you're god, yeah, by, I am. Who knows what? Your curiosity is it? Your curiosity that's on the it, It's 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 two things. It's my curiosity, but it's also this this intense pleasure in trying to figure out how to take the facts and break them down in a way that are just utterly engaging, entertaining, and fun to, to receive on the part of an audience. Mm -hmm. I just love that architectural challenge. Yeah. So at the end of every one of these podcasts, I always ask sort of what your version is of the, the zombie apocalypse of like the kind of zombification that we've been talking about. And now I feel like we've talked about so many different yeah. kinds of zombification. We've talked about what entertainment talked about sort of the, um, you know, all these issues of like, are, you know, who's in or what's in control of behavior. Uh, we've talked about, um, society controlling. We've talked about the, you know, undead and <laughs> various ways. Um, so I, there's a lot of potential directions we could go with the, the zombie apocalypse of, and, and so the idea is like, if you took this kind of zombification, you just amplified it, you, you know, ratchet it up. So, um, so if we take like the one we we're just talking about curiosity, do you ramp that one up? What is that the what's the zombie apocalypse of, of that or whichever whatever you want to take is an apocalypse anything. always a bad thing it, it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be <laughs> you could i guess yeah, you think yeah. of eating eating flesh that's that's probably a bad thing uh i don't know you know uh i guess insatiable curiosity the the apocalypse with insatiable curiosity is 
you know, I can imagine actually a very uh, hellish scenario there where you, you, you know, you, you don't even sleep because you are so consumed with moving from one narrative hit, one hit of curiosity, pleasure to the other, that like a, like a junkie who's, you know, gets desensitized to their drug, you just never stop and you never rest and you never take the time to think about the implications of a story, you know, oh. the consequences of a story, because once you've gotten that hit, you know, it's not enough, and you've got to go solve the next thing and find the next thing. And it's kind of like looking at your news apps in a way. I mean, we're kind of, we're kind of experiencing that apocalypse a little bit now. You know, what, what, was, what did it say in his report? And what happened? And what did, did you know, Trump do today? And what, 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 what happened? You know, so boom, 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 boom. Your, your, your thumbs are the first organ of that insatiable curiosity phase. And you just, you know, you're looking for that next hit. And, uh, yeah. And I there's always something a, to feed. There's always a feed. There's right? always a feed, you know, and yeah. will it ever be enough? Mm. Thank you. Yeah. For, yeah. Thank you for sharing your brains with us. <laughs> Whatever's for, yes, you're welcome. For whatever's in there, I'm happy to share. Thank so. you. And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we the Department of Psychology and ASU in general for supporting this podcast, especially the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Thank you also to the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. If you're looking for us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, we are Zombified Pod, and our website is zombified.org. You can also find us on Patreon. Please consider supporting us. Just $1 a month will help us make this ad-free, no-zombification educational podcast. And uh, thanks for to all the brains that help to make this podcast. To Tal Ram, who does our awesome sound. To Neil Smith, our illustrator. Um, and to Lemmy, the artist behind our song, Psychological. Thanks.
also to everyone in my lab who helped to make this podcast happen. So at the end of each episode, I share my brains, I offer a story or a connection to my work, or sometimes a wild speculation, sometimes some combination of those things. And so today, I have to admit, I was a little bit paralyzed by uh, what to say because I felt like there's so many things I wanted to say, but um, I kind of couldn't figure out exactly where to start and where to end. So I'm going to offer a few different thoughts. So one is I have to say this episode just made me think a lot about like, would I actually want to be undead when I die? Like if there was a way to somehow preserve myself like the, you know, cryogenic approach but sort of like guaranteed to work like if we knew that it worked would I even want to do that would I want to be able to come back to life in the future you know and if that involved me not being in my body right so just my head on a different body or just my brain or my consciousness in something else would I want that and would that be me if it was not my body and it was just my brain and then you get into like well what if it was just the you know neural patterns and it wasn't even in a brain if you downloaded it into another brain so yeah at that point my brain just starts hurting and I don't know the answer to those questions I don't know I think I kind of want to just die when I die I don't know that I want to be in this kind of like weird liminal space where I'm sort of alive, but not really me. Um, Yeah, I think at this point, I'm just going to opt for like, when I die, I die. But I want to reserve the right to change my mind about that, depending on how technology develops. Okay, and the other thing I wanted to offer, and this is, this is totally a wild speculation, um, If you have been listening to the earlier episodes, and we did some episodes about stress, um, there, uh, and we also did some episodes about microbes and manipulation, so we're going to try to, like, pull some of it together here. So here is a wild speculation. So um, in this episode, Mark talks a little bit about how when we die, there are microbes that just bloom, right? And so... They consume us from the inside out when we die. So from their perspective, the perspective of their fitness interests here, and I'm not implying that there's any consciousness or any intention here, but from their perspective, from their fitness interests, they do better when we die. And so you could imagine a scenario where certain microbes are actually under evolutionary pressure to induce their host to die sooner than they otherwise would. And, you know, thinking about this from a physiological perspective, well, that kind of seems like what happens with some infectious diseases, right? That they might potentially um, hasten the death of the organism, um, and that could actually allow some infectious diseases to have access to the resources of the organism when the organism dies. So that doesn't seem too crazy. But what if we think about, um, could it be the case that microbes could evolve to manipulate the behavior of their host to make them more likely to die? So 
maybe make them panic or freak out in a situation where freaking out actually reduces their survival probabilities. So I have to admit that I came up with this hypothesis because um, I was driving in a uh, sort of rural area around Sedona in Arizona and certain times of the year there are these rabbits all over the place and when you drive they seem to want to cross the street right in front of your car as close as possible to your car and I don't know if that's just a coincidence or if they're doing some sort of, you know, demonstration of how fast they are to a car that looks like a predator or something, um, or if maybe there's something going on where they are actually being um, influenced by microbes that would be better off if they died. Anyway, like I said, it's a wild speculation, um, but I think it's a pretty fun hypothesis to consider and something that could potentially be going on in all sorts of different systems. In fact, um, our I guess we had on a couple episodes ago, Joe Alcock has a really interesting um, hypothesis about heat stroke and how heat stroke might actually um, be partially a result of microbes that are sort of um, like jumping ship, like uh, maybe not jumping ship, but like ready to sort of turn on the organism because uh, it is kind of like a sink, sinking ship. So anyway, if you're interested in all these kinds of questions about microbes and manipulation, then um, definitely check out the Joe Alcock episode if you haven't yet, because we spend like the whole episode talking about crazy ways that parasites and um, bacteria and viruses can manipulate their hosts. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. Crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you.